Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. Picked a great day to come. We're actually in part two of a series entitled Hero to Heathen. Um, and, and you might be a little bit confused because normally in church you would think of how do we go from a heathen to a hero. Uh, but really we're looking at the life of Saul and some of his negative life patterns with, with the hopes of maybe we can see some of those things on the inside of us and, uh, and we can adjust our course on the journey. And so how we're defining hero and heathen is really important. I'm, look at the screen with me. The way we're defining a hero is one who acknowledges God. And the way we're defining a heathen is one who does not acknowledge God. That's the definition of a heathen, one who does not acknowledge God. Now, um, it, it's really important to understand this because our, our, our theme verse comes out of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. And this is what it says. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge. Now, in this word acknowledge, the root word is the word know, which is from the Hebrew word yada, which is, it really means an intimate know. It's the same word that God used when Adam knew his wife Eve intimately. So it's as if Solomon is saying, hey, listen, really lean in and invite God into close quarters. Invite him intimately into every area of your life. And the result is he will make straight your paths. So this morning I, I want to talk to you a little bit around this, this subject of processing pride, processing pride. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word this morning, I ask that you would just use my uh, voice as an instrument for your glory, for your name. Uh, God, I pray that you'd speak to us as we open up your word that uh, our lives would never be the same. Lord, we have not come to play church. We've come to encounter you, Jesus. And so we just pray that, uh, God, you would speak in a very real way right where we're at. Uh, to each of our hearts. And Lord, we ask this in the mighty and the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, I, I drove home the other day and I, I noticed uh, something interesting. Um, my, my daughter, uh, Hannah, she is two years old and she was riding her little tricycle. And it's amazing as they start to grow, you start to see their personalities come out. And she pulled her little cart to the side and she looked at me and she waved me and go ahead, dad. It's like, you're two. I'm supposed to tell you to get out of the way. And so, so I pull in, and she's on this little tricycle. Let me show you a picture. Little radio flyer. And it was so cute because she's got my attention, and she said, hey, Dad, look at me. And uh, so I got out, and I'm watching her, and I'm, I'm noticing that she's pedaling, but she's pedaling backwards. And on our driveway, there's a little bit of a slope. So when you're coming toward the house, it's a whole lot easier to pedal backwards because you get a little bit of a roll. And she's excited, like, look at me, Dad, and she's going backwards. And that's awesome and very cute, except for we live on a busy street. And so she's headed right for the end of the driveway. So I run out there. I was like, baby girl, no, 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 we need you to move forward. We need you to, to pedal forward where you can see where you're going. So I took her little feet, and I tried to, you know, show her how to, to pedal on this little thing. And... And she got irritated with me. Like I was messing up her ride. I was messing up her flow. And she's like, no, like, don't correct me. How, how do you guys do with correction? Anybody good at correction? And, uh, and so finally, 
she started pedaling backwards again. Then I just pulled the dad card. I'm like, I'm your dad. So I'm pushing you this way. And as I began to push her a little bit, she caught the, wheel, the, the pedals. And I pushed her a little bit more and she caught it. And she started to actually move upward uh, towards the house, up the hill, pedaling just fine. But in, in order for, for this young girl to move forward, she needed to be corrected. And, and one of the things that, that I, I, I love about correction is it's not just simply like, hey, you need to move forward. There, there was some instruction. There was some teaching. And, and I love 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to do what? To teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. The scripture is useful to, to teach, to correct, to show us what's truth and what's not. Even though it's useful, though, it's not always joyful. Because a lot of times we don't like to be corrected. I don't know about you, but there, there's moments where you find yourself in a mature moment and you're like, please correct me. But then there's other moments where you're like, no, you're not going to correct me. And I think a, a big part of that is because we all wrestle with this reality. If you're taking notes, jot this down. We wrestle with this reality of pride. Now, I'm not talking about the pride, like when you're proud of your kid after they, you know, hit a home run. I'm not talking about the pride that maybe you have in some of the accomplishments that God has used you uh, to accomplish, some of the things that are inspiring other people. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm not even talking about pride that maybe you're, you're in a successful career or you're happy the way your business is going or you're doing really well in school. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm talking about the problem of pride. I love the way Andy Stanley phrases it. He says, uh, pride becomes a problem when you become too big that there's no room for God and others. I'm, I'm talking about pride that's so big that there's, oh, no, you can go back. I'm talking about pride that's so big that there, there's no room for any correction. There's no room for you to admit when you're wrong. There's no room for you to initiate a conversation that you should probably initiate. There's no room for teachability. It's just this huge deal with pride. That's why I made it so big, because there's no room for anything else. And I think if we're honest, we all know how that feels to wrestle and battle with a little bit of pride. I think we all know how it feels to, to, to be in the wrong. You ever find yourself in the wrong and you know you're in the wrong? You just can't let anybody else know you're in the wrong. And so you fight and you fight and you fight when you should be, you know, allowing somebody to maybe correct you or teach you or you should admit something. It's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not even going to give you the satisfaction. I know I'm wrong, but I'm not going to let you know I'm wrong. So I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm not going to give any room for any of that other stuff. <laughs> now, we've all been there and I, I think it's, it's understandable sometimes, and we come to our senses, and we realize that we act ridiculous, but sometimes we do that enough, we, we do that so often that we start to actually believe our lies. And then everybody else sees it except us. That's a scary place to be. But I think it also manifests in, in other ways, too, uh, like you've heard me say before, is with insecurity. I think insecurity is one of the highest forms of pride. Because it, it looks a lot different, but it's still all-consuming with self, that there's no room to care about the concerns or the needs of others. And or even when God wants to intervene and do something in your life, it's like, sorry, God, I'm too messed up. 
No. And there still is no room for others, and there's still no room for God. Now, it's a pride that's so big that moves us from a hero to a heathen. One who acknowledges God to the point where there is no room for God to speak into different areas of our life. And I think it's, it's important that we understand that it's not even so much the pride per se, but rather the process. It's, let me say it this way. The way that we process pride many times is really the problem. Because a lot of us are going to have moments where our ego is, is, you know, striked the wrong way or we made a mistake and somebody's calling, out, calling us out on that mistake. And, and we feel like, oh, that really stung. Yep, you're right, guys, like you, you can't fix something and, and somebody comes and does it really easy and your ego is kind of like, ugh. You feel like your man car is getting, you know, little by little getting taken away. Like all of us are going to wrestle with this reality of pride, but how we process it really determines the difference. Because it's not, it's not a sin to be tempted with pride. It's not a, te- a sin to, to feel those things or have your ego, you know, kind of smashed a little bit. It's what you do with it, though, that makes all the difference in the world. I'll tell you a story about a truly humble man, which are, are kind of hard to find. And this, there was a man by the name of Booker T. Washington. He was a renowned black educator and was an extending example of what it looks like to walk in humility. Shortly after he took over the presidency of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled. He rolled up his sleeves and proceeded to do the humble chore she had requested. When he was finished, he carried the logs into the house and stacked them by the fireplace. And a little girl recognized him and later revealed his identity to the lady. The next morning, embarrassed as the woman was, she went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the institute and apologized profusely. It's perfectly all right, madam, he replied. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand warmly and assured him that this meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. Not long afterwards, she showed her admiration by persuading some wealthy acquaintances to join her in donating thousands of dollars to the Tuscany Institute. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. I want you to jot down this reality is that if we process pride properly, it can actually be profitable. You see, this man had every right to say, whoa, whoa. And he would have been justified. It would have been right. But, but how he processed turned out to be rather profitable. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. That processing pride will either, either lead you to one of two areas. It will either lead you towards humility and surrender or it will lead you towards sin and control. How we process our pride is going to lead us in one of these two directions. Now, this was Saul's downfall. This was King Saul's kryptonite. Was He wrestled with his ego. He wrestled with pride. He wrestled with fear. He wrestled with insecurities. And ultimately, um, these were some of the behaviors that led him from a, from a hero, one that acknowledges God, to a heathen, or one who does not acknowledge God. He just had such a hard time processing pride. Now, now last week, 
we saw clearly that God had given Saul clear instructions on what to do when he got to the place of Gilgal. Samuel instructed him, the prophet Samuel instructed him very clearly, said, hey, listen, Saul, when you get to Gilgal, you need to wait there seven days. I'm going to show up. I'm going to offer, offer the sacrifice, um, the burnt offering, and the peace offering, and then I'm going to give you instruction on what you're to do next. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. So Saul had clear instruction, and, and as we, we learned last week, uh, Saul was waiting. The seventh day had come, but even though Samuel showed up on the seventh day, it wasn't at the crack of dawn, so Saul was anxious, and he was afraid, and he let fear and pride creep in, and so he did what only the priest should have done, and he offered the sacrifice himself, and the moment he did it, Samuel showed up. And we said last week was that moment of just kind of hunched over like, oh, what in the world did I just do? I just blew it. And now he's about to be corrected. Now he's about to be called out on his sin. This is the moment of truth. So how are you going to process? Is it going to lead you towards surrender and humility or is it going to lead you towards sin and control? And so Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, look what Samuel says. He asks Saul a question. He says, what have you done? Now those are fighting words sometimes. What in the world have you done? Now if you're processing it properly, it would have, might have looked something like this. I know, man, I really blew it. I got afraid and I pulled the trigger and I shouldn't have. I'm so sorry. I repent. What should I do? I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Samuel. Where should I go from here? Right? Processing a little bit differently, it might look a little something like this. I don't know, what have you done? <laughs> like, why are you all in my mix? Don't worry about what I'm doing. I'm a grown man. Worry about yourself. What, what, what are you doing? And we see that Saul, he doesn't respond like that, but, but pretty close. He goes on to say this. He says, Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattered. And that you didn't come at the set time. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. Notice how he had clear instruction from the Lord. But he thought, he assumed. I just assumed that God was wrong. And, uh, you know, sometimes I like to say the devil lives in the realm of assumption. Whenever God says something, it's best not to assume the opposite. Just saying. And he says, and I have sought the, I haven't even sought the Lord's favor. Like, man, I was trying to find some favor with God. Well, man, then you should have listened to him. Right? But we're all guilty of this. All of us feel really pompous, right? We're pointing the finger at Saul like, you ridiculous man. But we're all guilty of this, aren't we? And he says, so I felt compelled. Oh, so you thought and you felt. When God had said, can I just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, feelings are fickle. Don't base your decisions on how you feel. Because a lot of times they'll, they'll deceive you. They're important. But they'll deceive you. So he said, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. In other, wor in other words, if it wasn't for these guys and if it wasn't for you and if it wasn't for the Philistines, I wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> and I felt justified. Because of the men, because of you, and because of the Philistines. Wrong answer, dude. Wrong process. 
You see, Saul's issue, it wasn't just his thinking, it was his source. Now, if you've ever been in one of our Freedom Small Groups, this is going to reinforce uh, some of the things that we've, we've shown you and have been teaching you. Uh, I talked about this about a year and a half ago, but it was through the context of a wound. But today I want to look at it through the context of correction. And so, so Saul had a source issue of how he processed and filtered his decisions in dealing with pride. Let me show you what I mean by that. So there was an event that took place, and pretty much what happened was he was called out on his sin. That was the event. He was corrected. And really what happens in that moment is we are going to process that correction through one of three sources. The enemy source, which is the devil. How many of you guys know it's not good to process with him? It doesn't turn out very well all the time. Ourselves or our pride or God is going to kind of be that filter. And we see that from Saul's life. He just had this, 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 this angst on the inside of him to process through some of the enemy's lies and to filter things through his pride. So as a result of that, he bought into a lie. He bought into a lie. And we're going to name that lie justification today. Man, I felt justified by disobeying the word of the Lord because of the men, because of you, and because of the Philistines. And it sounds pretty noble. I mean, it sounds pretty good. Most of our justifications sound really good. Don't they? And it sounds even better to us than it does to, to everybody else. But what ends up happening is, is, is we, we process through the wrong filter. We process pride through the filter of ourselves and the enemy. And then we buy into some sort of a lie. And you can translate this on multiple levels, but we're just talking about correction today. We're talking about pride. And so he starts to justify. Well, as a result of buying into this lie and justifying, he has to cast blame. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. He moves from a lie to judgments. He starts to make judgments on his men. I mean, these guys aren't reliable. These guys bailed on me. They don't have my back. And when he made the judgment against Samuel, he was really making it against God, saying, hey, God wasn't on time. Can't depend on God. God will let me down in my time of need. God, where were you? And then he moves to the Philistines. Now, these guys had a problem with, with God. But all of a sudden, it's getting a little bit personal now. Now you're messing up my life, Philistines. If you guys weren't here... I wouldn't be in this mess. And Saul was pretty wrecked because after that conversation with Samuel, it, God was very clear that because of that decision that his kingdom would no longer endure and would not be established. And that King David would, would you know, God found a, a man after his own heart, which was King David. And so Saul is wrestling with this pride, with this insecurity, with fear. And there was probably, now the scripture isn't clear on this but, at all, but this, he probably even casted a judgment towards himself. That's my opinion. Because when you make a big mistake, it's hard not to cast a judgment towards yourself. Man, you're always messing stuff up, dude. Man, if you would have just did it right. And so as a result of, of, of processing through this reality of justification and blaming other people, then he has to find a defense. He has to find a coping mechanism. He has to find a way to medicate, a way to, you know, push the anxiety away and not deal with the tension and the strife and the, the repercussions of his actions. 
And so we ask to create a defense, and we see in Saul's defense, he tends to lean towards self-sufficiency and control. We see that all throughout his reign. I really don't need to acknowledge God. I need to figure it out myself, and I need to take control of the situation. And, and, and we see this in, in a lot of different ways. Let me, let me give you an example. So the moment that this whole scene dies down, all of a sudden, uh, what Saul should have done is he should have said, man, I repent. I'm sorry. God, I get it. There's consequences to my actions. But how do I make it right moving forward? Let's go get the Philistines by faith. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to rely on your word. Let's go for it. But Saul doesn't do that. Matter of fact, there's no sign of repentance. There's no sign of him being remorseful. It says that after, that, after Samuel called him on his stuff and said, your kingdom's not going to establish, that was it. And so when he should have been going after the Philistines, he sat and waited in his fear and his pride once again trying to figure it out. Well, his son Jonathan was a man of God uh, and loved the Lord and was really kind of discouraged and disappointed with the whole thing. So much so that in, in chapter 14, uh, Jonathan took uh, uh, his armor bearer and said, hey, listen, we're going to sneak out of camp. Let's go get these Philistines ourselves." Like, God is with us, let's go. So long story short, they go, they kill 20 Philistines. It spreads fear throughout the entire camp. And the Philistines start retreating. And Saul's up in Gilgal, and they can hear the commotion. And so as they look down, they see the Philistines retreating. Saul starts to get nervous again. Saul starts to, why are they retreating? Take roll. Who's not here? So they took roll, and they said, well, your son's not here or his armor bear. Mm. They're where he should have been, walking by faith, doing what God had instructed him to do. But here he is up on top, not doing anything. But now it's that angst of, you're taking my glory, Jonathan. Who's not here? <sighs> and so what does he do? He starts, he starts to move in the right direction. Then he has to get control again. Look, look what it says. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 18. It says, Then Saul shouted for Ahijah, bring the ephod here. For at the time Ahijah was wearing the ephod, this was a priest in front of the Israelites. So Paul, Saul said, hey, get the priest. And the ephod that the priest would wear, a lot of times there was um, a place where they would hold what they would call lots. It was kind of like a modern day dice. And they would roll the dice to determine what the will of the Lord would be. How awesome would that be today, right? All right, Lord, what are you saying? Seven it is. Woo! We're winning. Um, but it says, while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion of the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So he's hearing it. And the Philistines were starting to turn on themselves, started killing themselves and one another. And this huge uproar. And it's almost as if, oh man, my glory is being robbed. And so look what he says. He says, so Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's get going. Never mind what the Lord has to say. Let's just keep going. It's not how many times for you and I, it's so much easier when we're wrestling with pride. It's so easy when we, we see, man, if I could just, I just need to grab this over here. I need to get a hold of this over here. If I could just land this. If I can just conquer that. If I can just, and, our, and, and the motivation is, God, what do you have to say? What do you have to say? But then all these distractions, we just end up saying, just like Saul, never mind. Let's keep going. Rather than seeking the will of God, we begin to seek our own glory 
We begin to seek the, the, the profit of ourselves. And it just never turns out well that way. And it's so easy to point the finger at Saul, isn't it? You control freak. Like, why didn't you just listen? Like, like for you and I, it can seem a little distant because we're not, you know, making, you know, decrees in kingdoms that are affecting the lives of a lot of other people. And we're not making decrees that are overruling God's decrees in, in a place like Saul. But, but I think we're making decisions every single day that many times we look at our decisions and they're really our will we find is trumping the will of God. We find that the things that we want and desire are sometimes get a hold of us to such a degree that we want control. We feel like there's a self-sufficiency then rather than depending on God, we need to take control. We need to make it happen. And, and as a result of that, we end up disappointed because we walk away from God's counsel and we say, let's get going. And it's like, man. And so it's really easy to point the finger at Saul, but, but we have an epidemic here in America, even in the church. Let me show you what I mean. George Barna said this. He said only 3% of all self-identified Christians in America, this is a poll that was taken, a survey. So they identify themselves as Christians. Say that they have surrendered control of their life to God, submitted to his will for their life, and devoted themselves to loving and serving God and other people. 3%. So yeah, like we believe all this stuff. We just don't submit our lives to God. Like his will. <laughs> Let's get going. Like, we're cool with going to church. Just the moment God wants us to, like, surrender, uh, let's get going. We got to get some lunch. We got to get to the game. And so, and, and so it, it's not just this, this ancient struggle that we see as Saul. It's, it's something that you and I wrestle with on a regular basis. And so as a result of Saul's self-sufficiency and his control, what ends up happening, let me show you on the screen is that defense a lot of times leads to, to bitterness and unforgiveness because we've made some judgments against people. We've casted the blame. We're upset. We're angry. So a judgment may say something like, like we said, God will never, I can't count on God. He won't come through. My men, they're worthless. They're never going to get my back. Myself, I'm always going to be, a, you know, I'm always going to be a failure. I'm always, Philistines, I just hate those guys. I just hate you. Making my life miserable, right? But then what ends up happening is we harbor some unforgiveness. And a lot of times it's in this point we make what, what we would call an inner vow. An inner vow would look something like this. Based on the judgment, my guys, they're not dependable. Therefore, my inner vow would say I will never trust and depend on them again. I'll never do that. Inner vow would say, God, you let me down. I cannot count on God. To show up on time or for my welfare. I will never trust him again. Right, so we can make vows. And the problem with inner vows is when we make these vows, we lock the Lord out of them. It's in that moment we step in as lordship over our life and we lock God out. So a judgment, we step in as Lord over somebody else's life and say, hey, we are your God and we are able to Give a, a just decree over your life because we are all-knowing and awesome. Therefore, this is who you are. An inner vow locks us, locks us in as Lord and locks God out. Says, hey, I will never do this. God, you're not invited into this vow. You have no lordship here. And it can manifest in a lot of different ways. And so for Saul, it actually manifested 
as a religious vow. Let, let me show you what I mean. It goes on to say, 1 Samuel 14, that it says, Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day. Why? Because Saul had placed them under an oath, under a vow that he made, saying, Let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening, before I have full revenge on my enemies. Now all of a sudden, these are no longer God's enemies. It's personal. And notice how the Lord is not anywhere in this vow. It's all about him. And what's interesting is it sounds good. Let's fast. But nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Torah did it say that men have to fast during battle. That's ridiculous. Like, that's not serving your men well. Right? And so Saul is just losing it. He's trying to, he's trying to prove himself. He's trying to find some ground. And, and so he, he wants everybody, listen, I want you to know that I'm a man of God. So we're going to fast when it's battle time. That's what we're going to do. Yep. So if you eat anything... You're going to be cursed. Then maybe God will see me. <clears throat> see, God, I, I know what I'm doing here. And that, that's the problem with religion. The problem with religion is it's exhausting. Because it's centered around man. When relationship with God is centered on him. Religion says, look at me. Look how awesome I am, God. You see me? Hey, everybody, you see how spiritual I am? I, I remember one time we went to camp, and, and we pastored a, a you know, a, a, a very um, colorful group of kids. And, and I remember one guy, there, there were, you know, whispers around the camp like, oh, they're the ghetto church. I remember one guy, and, and, it, and for whatever reason, I don't know if it made them feel more spiritual, and I remember having a conversation with the guy. I was like, yeah, you got a lot of trouble, kids. I was like, yeah, I actually do, man. I think Jesus is okay with that. Oh, yeah, no, I know. I'm just, oh. But why are you telling everybody that we're a ghetto church? What, because we got some brokenness? Why, because there's some issues? Does it make you feel more religious and better? That you're, you're, you're casting judgments and putting down all these kids who are here to, to find hope and healing? It's just a, religious stuff is a mess. When it's not the true religion that God speaks about of tending to orphans and taking care of widows, that's still revolved around God. But it's, it's a mess and it wears people out. You're on a performing treadmill trying to, to, to show everybody how awesome and spiritual you are. And that's why, listen, we hurt people with religion. I mean, how many times, like, well, you know what the Bible says... And we can use the Bible as a sword in such a wrong way. Like, the, like a sword can do a lot of great things, but it can also damage people if it's used improperly. And so Saul's trying to prove himself spiritual and all this stuff is going on. And it's all about him. God has no place in this. God is not in it. And, and it's almost like God's like, what are you doing? I don't care about your fast. I care about your heart. I care about your motivation. And it's all messed up. That's what I care about. If you want to get my attention, that's what I'm concerned with. Continue. And it goes on to say, so no one ate anything all day, even though they all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey because they all feared the oath that they had taken. And so just get this picture for a moment. They're walking on honey. And they've been fighting all day. 
painful is that? Like, how much does that hurt? They're exhausted and afraid. That's where religion will put you. Exhausted and afraid. Because if it's all up to you, and the decisions that he's making and putting his convictions on other people that have nothing to do with the will of God, exhausted and afraid. And you start to think in these moments, Saul, he starts to, you become so self-centered that you, you stop being sensitive towards people. It's like, did you ever think, man, these guys are in battle, they're, they're kids, some of them are dying to serve you. But you got to try to uphold this image and this, this whatever you're trying to create. And it's just horrible, insensitive. Right? And, and, and all of a sudden he's, he's, he's doing a good thing. Like fasting is a good thing, but, but the timing's off. His judgment's skewed. He's all over the map. And his men are hurting. They're exhausted. Saul's responding impulsively. He's trying to gain control. If I can just gain some control, if I, it's all up to me. And it's like, man, that's an exhausting place to live, ladies and gentlemen. When life is all up to you. Apart from God, life is exhausting, I'm telling you. And it goes on to say this. It goes on to say, but Jonathan had not heard his father's command. Jonathan's out taking care of the Philistines. He's taking care of business. He's walking with God. He's feeling great. He says, and he dipped the end of his stick in a piece of honeycomb and ate the honey. After he had eaten it, he felt refreshed. Jonathan was so grateful he didn't hear that vow. Probably wouldn't listen anyways. But, but I just stopped for a minute. There's some things that we need to stop hearing so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. There's some things that we need to, to shut our ears to that are keeping us in bondage, that are keeping us in fear, that are keeping us, you know, under some, some crazy stuff that God has nothing to do with. And Jonathan's like, whoo, this honey is good. I'm feeling refreshed. That's the difference between religion and relationship. Relationship with God will refresh you. Religion will exhaust you. And so, so he's, he's eating the honey and feeling refreshed. And look what the guys, the guys come and say, oh, no, man. It says, but one of the men saw him and said, man, your father made the whole army take a strict oath that no one is to eat food today that will be cursed. That is why everyone is weary and faint. So now you start to see the reaction or the results of Saul's processing. Let me show you. The reaction from this oath. Go ahead to the next slide for me. There you go. Um, the reaction is now hurt and exhaustion. That's how the men feel towards their leader. Saul lost influence and he's hurting people. That's what we say, right? Hurt people, hurt people. And now guess what? That cycle continues. Well, I, I guess that's how I'm supposed to process stuff. And a lot of times that same cycle starts to take place in the people that we hurt and that we wound. And it's like, man, what if he just would have took a time out. His appetite was so hungry for himself. So hungry to try to be right and prove his, his deal. I, I remember hearing a story. And it was during the 14th century. Reynold III was a duke in the, the arena or the, the area that, was, that is now Belgium. And as a result of a violent quarrel... Raylan's brother, younger brother, Edward, successfully revolted against him. When Edward captured Raylan, he built a room around him featuring windows and a door and promised him that the day he left the room, his title and property would be 
return to him. The problem with this arrangement was that Reynolds was grossly overweight and could not fit through the openings in the room. Reynolds needed to lose weight before he could leave the room, and Edward knew that his older brother could not control his appetite and sent him delicious food every single day. That's a horrible brother. He says, as you imagine, Reynolds grew fatter and fatter during this time. Anytime someone accused Duke of treating Reynolds cruelly, he said, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. So Reynolds stayed in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. By then his health was so ruined, he died within a year. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. I just wonder sometimes that our appetite for control, our appetite to be right, our appetite for all of these things. What if, what if we, we, we switched our meal plan? What if we changed our source? Like the game could be completely different. All Saul needed to do on this journey, he had several opportunities. He just needed to change his source. He needed to get an appetite for some new things. Because it, kind of, it could have looked a little bit like this. Go back to the original moment. He says, the event, he's called out on the sin, but now the interpreter is the Holy Spirit. Now with the Holy Spirit as your source, the Spirit of God is always going to lead us into all truth. How does that look in real time? It just simply means to invite Jesus in. Hey, Lord, I'm struggling here. My ego's bruised. I want to be right. But my decisions are hurting people. I want to get it right, though. Lord, what areas am I not processing properly? Inviting Jesus in. What does it mean to invite Jesus in? Well, you can start with some prayer questions. You can start with just asking the Lord, Lord, can you identify some areas that I've bought into a lie, that I've been processing through the wrong filter, that I've been processing through the wrong source? be surprised that when you take time to ask the Lord instead of get going, you'll be surprised how God speaks to you in those moments. Maybe it's not entirely clear. And, and if God speaks to you, you want to make sure that it's God and not something else. So then it's good to go to the scripture and ask some questions. Lord, what do you say about this? What do you say about this? How does this, how do you think about this area? Lord God, do you, how should I be thinking about this area? Lord, do you have a design for this area? Just ask some questions. Open the scripture. And then find a mentor, a godly mentor that you can ask and filter some of those things through. If you're not sure, some stuff's going to be so clear to you. It's like even as I'm speaking, the Lord's like, yep, yep, that one, yep, oh, that lie, mm-hmm. But sometimes we just need some godly people around us. I'm so grateful that I don't do life alone. I'm so grateful that I have pastor friends that I can go to and be pastored. Can I tell you, probably at least a few times a month, I call those mentors and I'll ask, hey, am I thinking about this right? Is my ego getting away? Am I processing properly? Are you seeing something that I'm not? How am I thinking about this? And they have full permission to tell me no, yes, good job, or you're crazy. They have full permission to do that. And then ask some me questions in this process. And if I process this way, 
if I make that decision, how's this going to affect me? How's this going to affect my relationships? How's this going to affect my character? What's this going to do to my reputation? Count the cost. And all of a sudden, when God begins to speak to you, then all of a sudden, you're going to realize something with the Lord is that you don't need to be self-sufficient and controlling because God is your comfort and defender. Do you know how freeing it is just to know that vengeance belongs to him and not me? That's like the, it's like the greatest liberating moment when you realize that you don't have to defend yourself. Listen, I, I dealt with rejection. I dealt with shame. I dealt with abandonment. I always felt like I was defending myself my entire life. I grew up in a, in a tough, you know, circle of people. I was always proving myself. And I'll never forget I was in youth ministry one time. And when I first started helping out in youth ministry, I was barely saved. And, and, and I always felt like I still had to have it all under control. It's just what we do. It's under control. My emotions are under, everything's under control. I remember the first time that I actually acted like an idiot. And it was like, it's okay. Like, I, 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 can, I can have fun. I can, I can actually, because I, I didn't... I don't feel like I got much of a childhood. I had to grow up real fast. And so to actually play and, and, and be silly, and it, it was for once in my life, it was okay. Because I didn't need to protect myself anymore. I didn't need to prove myself anymore. How free that was. Liberating. When God is your defender, when God is your protector, all of a sudden it's hard to be bitter at people. I always tell married couples, before you start to argue, that this kind, go ahead and argue, but just pray first. Pray together first. And then argue. It's so much more harder to do that, right? Like when you realize that God is your defender, you don't, you don't have to judge people. You can recognize that people are broken just like you are. And you can navigate through those waters. And the beautiful thing is then you don't need inner vows or religion because you have relationship and forgiveness. It's like, man, Lord, they really hurt me. But I know the truth is I can't cast a judgment. And I can't put a label and, and make a vow that locks you out. So, Lord, I'm going to choose to forgive. And I'm going to have to make that choice every day for a season. But I'm going to choose to forgive. And then the reaction changes. Could you imagine if Saul the first time just said, hey, guys, listen, man, I blew it. I put all your lives in jeopardy. Messed up. I didn't listen to the Lord. And as a result of that, I'm going to suffer major consequences. My kingdom will not be established. And I will not go the distance. But I want to finish strong. Will you fight with me? Can we do this together? But in the right way, we're going to depend on the Lord and we're going to submit to his will 100%. You know what these guys would have said? Man, we're in. I can understand that. Restoration. But our pride just holds on to us so much sometimes. And we just start dismantling and hurting and exhausting people. For what? God is saying, I just want to show you how to pedal. I don't want you to go into the street. I know it's easier to pedal backwards, but I need to show you how to move forward. And you got to have to change some things. You're going to have to get some things. You're going to have to unlearn some things. Let me correct you. Let me teach you. In other words, if you're taking note, last point is this. In order to change your course, we have to change our source. So creative, right? But it's the truth. We'll never be able to change that course until we change 